I think this passage just covers a whole load of real kind of challenging touch points for us in, in 21st century Western Europe. All sorts of questions for us to work through. But what I hope we're going to be able to do uh, this afternoon is really deal with the idea uh, that threads its way through the whole of the Bible. The powerful, incredible idea of coming home. I've been just amazingly privileged over the past uh, few months. My cousin, who we were like, we were kind of like brother and sister as we grew up, and, and life just kind of got in the way, and we didn't see each other for years and years. And uh, we've reconnected over the past few months, and it's just been fantastic. It's kind of a little bit like coming home. But the reality is that coming home, I believe, is one of those golden threads that follows and traces its way right the way through the Bible. In fact, it starts with us kind of at home with God. That's how the Bible starts. That's the portrayal. At home with God. Then there is a crisis. And the whole of the rest of the Bible, with moments that kind of speak into this, is about us reuniting right at the end where we are once again at home with God. I also know that the idea for some of coming home can be a painful thing. It's not always the best of ideas for some, the idea of coming home. I understand that. But I think even the grieving over the idea that coming home is not a good experience for you tells us that there is something about an ideal coming home that we desperately want. We do want that experience, that sense of peace and security and acceptance and guidance and limitation. That's what coming home does for us. And we kind of see in this section God's people coming home. To recap just a few, a few chapters earlier, what we've seen is is God's people rejecting the idea of walking in the family of God, walking in the pathway of God. And they've been defeated, and the, the, the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant has been lost. What we saw last time is the idea that the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, the glory of God, can look after itself. <laughs> it finds its way back to God's people. In, in human terms, what is a remarkable way of coming back. And now we see God's people back with the ark. So what does, this, what does this narrative, this story of God's people with the ark, talk to us about coming home? How can we see it? I'm going to run through, very quickly, I'm going to run through six things. I'm not going to really expand on them too much. I hope what it does for you is it just... Um, it just throws a few ideas into your mind. It, it kind of whets your appetite <laughs> for the ideas of what coming home might look like. And then what we're going to do is just at the end look at three ways where that is more powerful. How it applies to us. How a story from 3,000 years ago can actually speak powerfully to us today. And how we can see that homecoming and that sense of belonging, that sense of security and acceptance is so 
fundamental to our human experience and what it means like to be in the family of God. For you, it might not, you might be looking on at this idea of, of this idea of faith, this idea of trusting in this God. I want to join two things this afternoon. I want to join the idea that we know that we desperately want to come home with an idea of what it actually means to make that change. If you've walked with God for a short time or for decades, if you haven't already, you will know that there are times when the pathway that you're walking just disappears off into a kind of a distant place. And you're not walking with God. If you've, if you've recently come to faith and you feel as though just the world is an amazing place and your relationship with God is fantastic and amazing, let me tell you, you will hit a day when you're wandering off somewhere. What does coming home mean for us? Continually coming home. Continually being able to come home. Let's have a look. Let's whiz through the text, shall we? The first thing that we see, 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 3, it says this. The ark's back. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all of the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So that's, kind of, that's our moment. We know that God's presence is back and we know that God's people are back with God. Verse 3, so Samuel said to the Israelites, if... If you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Here we've got God's people that are coming back. <laughs> but you know when you come back, you've got all sorts of things that are just still hanging on. And when we've strayed and we've been off somewhere, we've still got things that are hanging on. And those things that are hanging on, Samuel's just brutally honest and he says, look, get rid of the idols. Get rid of them. Just, just leave them behind. We're going to think a little bit later about the idea of idols. So that, that's really, that's really a, a strange concept for us today. I hope it isn't as strange by the end of this afternoon. But the turn, this turn is critical in the experience of coming home. Leave it behind. Abandon the artifacts that have actually taken you away. That's what Samuel's saying to, his peop to the people. To God's people, he's saying, you know where you've been? You know, you know the things that have taken you up? You know how your mind has been carried somewhere? Your affections, your desires, your securities, you've placed them somewhere else, let go of them, come back. Second thing that we see in verse 5, 1 Samuel 7, 5 says this, Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. The reason for this is we see in verse, verse 4, we see this moment where we see that the Philistines are, are, are gathering up. We see the fear and we see as we follow on through the rest of the, the story, the backdrop to Israel's coming home is the threat of the Philistines. That's always what coming home looks like. 
there's always a threat. There's always a possibility that uh, it's going to, you're going to, uh, in fact, walking the Christian pathway, this is the way it's going to be. You're going to be coming home and there's going to be a threat and it's, at some point it's going to take you again. And you've got to come back. <laughs> but here we see the backdrop is the threat of the Philistines. But in chapter, uh, verse 5, it says this, assemble all the people at Mizpah. Their experience, their relationship with God was not designed to be one-to-one. It was designed to be together. It was designed to be an experience that they would share together. They were designed to be a people. We live in such an incredible individual society. In fact, billions of pounds dollars has been raised over the past 20 years to fund ventures that in all sorts of ways are trying to connect us. If you've thought about that over the past few, few years, what we carry around in our pocket, that little screen, how much of that screen is designed to somehow bring us together, to connect us, because we are made to be connected. What God is saying to, to his people at this moment in time, against the backdrop of the threat, togetherness is part of the answer. Be together. Every now and then, we get a little glimpse of what togetherness can be. Because the reality is, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not the easiest person to get along with. <laughs> and probably a whole load of us in here are not the easiest people to get along with. In fact, probably if we look around in, in the building today, we would probably see, say, there are a whole load of people that I would not intentionally design to spend time with. <laughs> but that is the amazing beauty of what God has designed is that we are designed to, to understand from each other difference and to be shaped and to be reshaped and to find His presence in our gathering. That's what happens. That's how it works out. We're designed to experience God together and we get occasional glimpses. There are glimpses in our human experience of why we want to be together. Why we, we, we find a greater joy in being together. I ain't going to mention football. That's actually a way to mention the football. <laughs> um, but for some, the idea of Manchester City only drawing this afternoon is the, if it's kind of like this the door is slightly ajar to a way of a sense of joy together, if it just might happen. That's so, that's so tiny, isn't it? But there is a way to, to, to engage in our human experience with togetherness. Third thing we see is this. The true and honest appraisal of our condition. Verse 6. When they'd assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. 
On that day they fasted and there they confessed we've sinned against the Lord. Here's the reality of what we are like as people. We let ourselves down. We do things, we behave in ways, we carry out acts, responses, imaginations, attitudes towards each other which shock ourselves. We might like to hide it away, but when we look deep in ourselves, when we know the reality of ourselves, we know that even against our own standards, we do not live the way we would want to live. But more than that, even the ways that we do want to live are not the ways that God would demand that we live. Now here's the amazing thing about what it means to come home. The very thing that you expect would separate us from being able to be with God, the truth about what we're really like, is the very thing that Samuel and the people realize is the honesty that is needed to be with God. <laughs> it's called confession. It's called being honest and truly appraising of the reality of ourselves before the righteousness of God and saying, that's true. You've got me. I have no answer to the reality of my pattern of behavior and thinking against what you would have me to be. That should be a barrier, but I am able to come to you and I am able to confess that. In fact, if I don't confess it, I can't come to you. Because the reality is that you know what I am like. I know what I'm like. But when I'm honest about what I am like, when I'm true about the reality of my inner experience and my failure before you, then I am able and I am liberated and I am freed to be with you. Confession is part of the framework of God's coming home. How does that work? <laughs> Look at verse 8 and 9. They said to Samuel, against the backdrop of the threat of the Philistines, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. See, part of the coming home is the recognition of this. There is a reconciling sacrifice. Part of that coming home contains sacrifice. We are threatened. Will you accept us? And the response of Samuel to seek the security of God is sacrifice. We're going to come back to that, but I just want to point it out here. That's what we've got. That's one of the things that for us today is probably one of the uncomfortable things. Which is why we're going to come back to it. Sacrifice stands in the gap between hope and loss. Protection and abandonment. Safety and destruction. Between those two opposites, 
stands as sacrifice, which creates the security for God's people. What do we see as a result of that? Number five, we see an overwhelming protection. Verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. So they've got this idea, boys, this is the moment they are all together. We've got them. You know, one of the challenges about, about defeating a people in the ancient world was the fact that they were scattered. But you know, you could say that Samuel has made them sitting ducks. They're all together. But what happens in verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and drew them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. I don't know what thundering with loud thunder means. I haven't got a clue. But what I do know is this, that what the narrator is making it clear we understand is that God acted in such a way that the tables were so dramatically turned that those who felt strong became terrified And those who felt themselves to be absolutely under threat became victorious. That's what happened. But do you see the connection that the narrator really wants us to see? While Samuel was sacrificing, God thundered. That there is such a connection. He's saying, yeah, God thundered. But I want you to see that it was while Samuel was sacrificing that God thundered. That's the moment when the turning point takes place. So the sacrifice isn't a little bit of narrative about something that Samuel did. It is actually the moment where God turns the tables on the oppressors and brings victory. If you know anything of the Bible story, there should be like a hundred bells going off in your head right now. Let me say it again. While Samuel is making the sacrifice, God thunders and defeats the oppressor. I think that's amazing. How does it work out from there? Number six, there is such a dramatic life-adjusting judgment. That sounds strange, doesn't it? There is a life-adjusting judgment. Look at what happens in verse 15 and 16. We're going to skip to the end. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. The idea of, okay, they've been together, they've confessed, they've sacrificed, they've been redeemed, Now they go back to their places, but it doesn't end. God's God's impact on them doesn't end. And the word that's used is judging. I think what what the narrator is wanting us to see is that that there is a wisdom and a rightness that comes into the people by Samuel's presence, and Samuel makes it his job 
to go around all of God's people, all of the territory, and he brings the wisdom and judgment of God into their lives on an ongoing basis. Yeah, they've been saved. But it's not like they've been saved and that's it. They've been saved to continue. And Samuel continues to move around from place to place. And he brings them under an an ongoing influence of God's judgment and God's wisdom. There's the six things. That's, I think, how this narrative unfolds. In a way, it's saying, really, it's just a, such a timeless story, really, isn't it? The way it works out. But there's three things I want to bring out and for us to think about just in the last few minutes. The first is this. What's homecoming like for us? It's abandoning our idols. It's abandoning our idols. You say, right, hang, whoa, hang on a sec. Idols, what do we think about when we think about idols? The previous chapter, what we see is this idea of the the Ark of the Covenant goes into the temple of Dagon. And Dagon's this great big uh, carved statue. And the following morning, Dagon's fallen over. And and then the following morning, morning again, after they stood him up, he's fallen over and smashed. And the ancient world understood something very clearly in their minds, in their, in their way of understanding the world in which they lived. They had a deep understanding, they have a deep connectedness with the idea of the supernatural. A deep connectedness with the idea of the supernatural. And we have the same deep connectedness with the idea of the supernatural today. 3,000 years has not changed that in the human experience. We might think about it differently. We might have different concepts, different ideas. But the idea of another, the idea that this life is not all there is, the idea of something greater and a supernatural force and being, it is still prevalent. It's still, it, we, can't, we can't wash it off us. We can't wash it off us because it's written deep inside us. We are made to know and to understand that. But what we don't have, at least so much, although I'm sure it will happen in some places within 20 miles of here, we don't quite so much in in our particular geographical location have the idea of idols that we worship. We don't bow down to things that are carved or cast or shaped. But what is the ancient world doing? I mean, we've got this horrific idea that God's people routed the Philistines. They killed a whole load of them. We say, that, that sounds like genocide to me. That sounds like unnecessary bloodshed to me. And it's in the Bible. And it's God who's saying to do it. Or, or at least giving vindication of it. How do we cope with that? Two things I would say to to resolve that great challenge for us. The first is this. The idea of that is a concept that dilutes through the Bible to the point where Jesus overturns it. But the reality is that the ancient world of 2000 to 1000 to 500 B.C., 
believed and understood that our success was based on military power and the power of our God. And the simple thing is this, that our God was willing to allow his hands to be in the grimy mess of our thinking and to speak with the language that we understood in that day. Which is that you might look at stone and bronze and gold and wooden idols, but against all human expectations, the living God will have the victory. And the challenge for the Philistines was this. All of our hope was in that God, Dagon. Our security. Our confidence for the future. Everything that had that sense of well-being for us was rooted in that. Where are our securities today? They're not in cast things or carved things. But in exactly the same way, and in just the same way, they are still in temporary things. They're things like finance, and buildings, and even relationships that can never fully last, and money, and all of those things that we say, if I just have a little bit more of that, if I, if I just make sure that I'm lined up in that area, whew, I'm going to get through life and I'm going to be okay. It's going to be alright if I just get that little bit of life sorted. That's my idol. It's where I'm putting my security. If that falls apart, I'm done. So please don't fall apart. But the reality is that God is saying to come back home You've got to let go of your trust in those things that are temporary. And put your trust in the one thing that is eternal, which is me. That's, that, that is, for me, what an idol is today. It's the things that we say, if that falls apart, I'm done. And God says to us, in Jesus, you're not. Even if that falls apart, I won't let you go. Because I live beyond literally everything. Abandoning our idols. The second thing I want to say is this. This might come as a profound shock. God does not love us unconditionally. God does not love us unconditionally. We love the idea of being unconditionally loved. I understand that. It's what we desperately, desperately want. But God doesn't love us unconditionally. What happens in this story here? We, are, we have a shock. We have a sweet, innocent lamb that's killed. And at that moment, God says, now I'll thunder against the enemy. And, it, and it, makes us, it makes us kind of angry. 
that a sweet, innocent something has to be killed so that God will bring security and safety as for his people. How can that work? I mean, look, look, it's just, it's a suckling lamb is the way it's described. This, just this emblem of innocence. You can't get more innocent. And that has to die so that the people who don't deserve it can live. And, and all inside of me thinks that is just horrific. And then John, when he say, sees Jesus, he says this, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See what God is willing to do? He's willing to allow the sacrifice of many, 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 many animals to happen in the Old Testament. And the horror of what it costs for us to be reconciled to God, to be literally poured out in the blood of those animals. Because he's preparing us for the horror of something which is way worse. Way worse. It's the sacrifice of his perfect, innocent son. And God does not love us unconditionally because the condition for us to be loved is the sacrifice of Jesus. That, that means that means that we have the opportunity to kind of experience unconditional love. It, that's, the, that's the genius, that's the amazing story of, of salvation that God has laid out. It means that we can feel as though there's unconditional love. And in a sense, we have this feeling and this taste of unconditional love where God says, you've wandered, come back. You've wandered, come back. You've gone so far, come back. There's no condition to you being able to come back between you and me because the condition for your coming back has been placed on my son. God doesn't love us unconditionally. We experience the taste and the flavor of unconditional love in the most remarkable, incredible, grace-filled, mercy-shaped way that we could ever imagine. But it's because of the condition that he placed on the sacrifice of his son. And actually that is, that is more important. <laughs> that is more valuable then, isn't it? That love. If God says, hey, let's forget about the past. Let's, let's just forget about it. And then we wander off. And he said, let's forget about that. Let's pretend it didn't happen. I'll love you. You and I are always sat wondering, at what point is God going to raise that? When's he going to say, oh, by the way, you know, it really still does hurt. And I am still angry that you did that, or you wandered off, or you lived that, like that, or you... And actually, we can say... <laughs> With absolute confidence, because he has said this is the case, you can come back because the conditions of your acceptance have been met. It's as though he, he sees the justice and the wrath 
that is poured out on Jesus continually. How do you say he sees it continually? Well, well, in Revelation, John describes the throne of heaven in this kind of apocalyptic, amazing picture. He says this, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Right there at the center of heaven, this picture of Jesus is a lamb somehow, I don't know what this looks like, but it's a picture for us to understand that the, that the work of the cross and the, and the sacrifice of Jesus is forever present in heaven, which means that whenever God says you're coming back, he says, and you can come back because I'll look at my son again. That's, I, I, I can't, I don't want to, I'm, I've got a third point, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'm going to stop now. Because if we grab hold of that, if we see that that is what true unconditional love, yet conditional from God looks like, we're safe forever. We can come home. We can be accepted. We know that we can be loved.